Welcome to the CSR Podcast. I'm Brian Brazo. In studio today with me, I have two postgraduate students from the CSR, Gloria Mormon and Rebecca Carnevale, who will introduce each other and discuss their work. Hello, my name's Gloria, and um, together with Rebecca, I'm, I'm going to tell you something about what we do here, and we wanted to just start from the beginning by presenting ourselves. I'm 26, and I come from the Netherlands, where I did a uh, BA in Italian Studies and MA in Book Studies at the University of Leiden. I'm Rebecca, just celebrating my 30th, and I come from Northern Italy, where I studied art history before moving to London, where I did the MA at the Warburg Institute. But since when have we been in touch? Do you remember? I think it's about a year ago now, actually, since we met around this time in 2015. Rebecca and I had been emailing before, but I still remember our first real-life meeting. I was in for quite some nice surprises, the first one being that Rebecca was actually not English, but Italian. It got even better when we realized our projects and research interests had a lot in common. Although concentrating on different geographical areas and coming from different academic backgrounds, we share a keen interest in early modern print culture and more specifically in the professionals involved, ranging from modest peddlers to the masterminds behind large-scale publishing firms. In my case, I deal with popular print in the Renaissance period, a topic that blends a personal penchant for visual culture, rooted in my background in art history and my scholarly interest in the book trade, how things were marketed, funded and distributed in close relation to the audiences and facilities of the market. In particular, my project deals with publishers of cheap print in late 16th and early 17th century Bologna, after the end of the Council of Trent in 1563 that affected the city as it was part of the Papal State. There was a surge in religious and also administrative minor materials that started to flood the market, such as devotional illustrated prints or decrees on social order. All over Italy, some publishers made the most of this and profited from the occasion, after which they could start earning official subsidies from printing material of this kind. Thus, my research question is, was it just a financial move to secure their businesses? Which actual audiences did this production target at? And what was the real agenda of authorities who granted the mentioned subsidies? Give me three years and I'll find out. It is interesting that whereas my project focuses on printed products of great socio-economic prestige, a series of town atlases produced in 17th century Amsterdam that could anachronistically be considered luxury coffee table books, that Rebecca works with material of a slightly different nature mostly badly drawn illustrations. Sometimes images have been so overly readapted or realized by poorly skilled workers that you cannot really understand what is going on, especially when animals are depicted. If you want to get an idea, check the hashtag NotAlion on Twitter. You'll be amazed how many times artists portrayed totally unlikely lions. <laughs> our perspectives meet, however, and this is part of what makes it so exciting that our paths have crossed at this particular moment in our lives and hopefully budding careers in their focus on the mechanisms behind the production and consumption of print material in urban contexts in early modern Europe. 
My work on town atlases has a particular emphasis on the Blaus Theatrum Italiae series, four folio volumes dedicated entirely to the cities of Italy that the publishers envisaged and eventually created in close, close relation to developing trends and theories surrounding travel. They were able to meet the wishes of both grand tourists and armchair travelers who preferred to discover Italy on paper, to a large extent thanks to their excellent artistic and intellectual networks that reached from the Low Countries to the Italian peninsula and the rest of Europe. Part of what has fascinated me about early modern publishers ever since I started learning about them back in Leiden, where the Elzevirs were once official publishers to the new university founded there after the Spaniards had left the city, is their incredible versatility, in both the geographical and the technical sense. In order to survive commercially, they needed to always keep an eye out for new techniques, the activities of their competitors, and maintain extensive networks, both abroad and in their home countries. This included frequent trips to book fairs, such as the one in Frankfurt, while staying up to date on what was going on in business through constant streams of letters going back and forth. The concept of versatility you just brought up is very interesting and at the core of my project as well. The publishers of cheap print I'm working on were not only appointed to print on behalf of local authorities, but they also ventured into the widest range of printed genres to earn their living from devotional images as set to illustrated scientific treatises, university prolusions, literary works of academia, but also musical scores and artistic prints by famous artists such as the Caracci. I really like the idea of looking at my art historical background from a more historical perspective, where the people who paid for the pulling of prints and the running of print workshops. Another kind of print production these publishers got involved with is, to start with, news reports. It was right at this time that newsprinting started to develop as a recognizable genre. First as simple reports on current affairs and warfare events, called in Italian avvisi. But then in the 1630s, the first gazettes of early modern Italy were printed. Another widespread genre of cheap print is governmental ephemera, that is the entire spectrum of decrees, proclamations, public notices, authorities of the time which needed to be printed to effectively reach the widest urban audience. Therefore, at the heart of my PhD lies the question of getting to know to whether there was any agenda behind these production processes, any strict regulation or financial support to the print trade and to this late 16th century genre. That would hopefully lead me to work on information and how it got access, but would in itself also provide insight into the practices of the book trade on a whole. The thing is, sometimes early modern Italian publishers stretched out the activity of simple book publishing per se. Some of them had bookshops where they sold the material printed by others too. For instance, Alessandro Benacci, who was the main official printer of Bologna from the 1580s, had shares in paper mills, and therefore likely also sold in his shop loose sheets of paper and stationary material. That reminds me of Antonio Laferri in Rome, who, on the other hand, sold a separate title page his customers could add to their collections of prints, which could have been issued by both Laferri and his competitors. Through this process, Laferri's name eventually became attached to a range of production way beyond his own. It is really intriguing to imagine what was going on behind the counters of early modern bookshops, or, for that matter, who was purchasing what, Quite like bookshops nowadays, the Blaus in Amsterdam, finding themselves in one of Europe's main port cities at the time, would, like Benazzi, also have had much more than maps and books on geography for sale in their shop. Willem Janszoon, founder of the firm in Amsterdam, actually started out as a seller of globes and his heirs followed in his footsteps by selling maritime instruments for the sailors coming in. 
It was through them that the Blaus eventually were also able to stay on top of advances in geographical knowledge, newly discovered ports or refinements marking the specific course of shores, for instance, which they in turn included in works like The Light of Navigation, guiding these same sailors at sea. Isn't it fascinating to discover the stories behind people that lived so long ago and to learn that we are not that different? I could tell you something similar from my research, in particular concerning trials for libeling, which I have been reading on with respect to handwritten versus printed posts in the European space. Commenting on the phenomenon of libeling posts and relevant trials in Bologna of the late 16th century, contemporary sources bitterly say that nowadays people get into trial for the dumbest of reasons, and there are too many lawyers. Not to mention what can be found in early modern news reports. Some advertise the content with phrases like the unbelievable event occurred in X or to the woman so-and-so, as told in this account. Basically, clickbaits. <laughs> These kinds of things are just so much fun. Apart from sharing discoveries and telling each other funny anecdotes over coffee breaks, however, we decided to make the most of this potential, the common ground shared by our projects when we heard about the possibility to participate in a competition for conference funding. And, of course, with a project plan for a conference on print history, what else? Ever since hearing that we were, in fact, amongst the lucky winners to be granted this chance, thanks to generous financial and practical support of the Humanities Research Council at Warwick, our enthusiasm has grown steadily. We are learning a lot through the actual process. Besides all the practicalities of organizing such an event, it is particularly stimulating to think about the ways in which we could and can tailor a project that matches two different backgrounds and perspectives. We study similar phenomena and, of course, eventually hope to build on previous knowledge. We went for a topic that could highlight our interest in, on the one hand, the professionals behind the book market, from editors to news or fair correspondents, and, on the other, the combination of image and textual content in some particularly print Genres, such as, I know I'm biased, atlases containing cartographic material. And that's how More Than Meets the Page was born. The event is scheduled for early March next year, so stay tuned. But for the moment, it is great to see that publicity our conference has already received and realize just how much attention the initiative has forced for print studies and the interdisciplinary approach that we believe in so strongly the approach that has been constantly promoted at the Centre for the Study in the Renaissance. Gloria, let's spend a word, or even more than just one, on this amazing place that is the Centre. There are not so many academic institutions devoted to a synchronic and multidisciplinary approach to the early modern period as this. The fact that it's a small postgraduate community, but with stretches to the whole subject area of the humanities faculty, is truly rewarding. How many times you just happen to have great ideas by chatting with fellows or someone from another department? There have been several occasions, last one this June when Professor Earl Heavens from John Hopkins University visited Warwick, where postgrads, and that meant also master students, had the opportunity to talk about their projects and share some of the challenges they were or might be facing. One day we ended up talking with someone from classics and someone else, an 18th century specialist. And all together we discussed questions of authorship and self-promotion via print culture. For instance, how can we assess the difference between wrong philological reconstructions and frauds? That applies to fake epigraphs from the humanist period, but also historical reconstructions and many kinds of maps. Academic research sometimes is all about this, realizing we have a gaze onto things and that we have to do our best to get as close as possible to the original meaning and fact, 
but also that our same way of looking at things make them stick out and relevant. It is true that our own individual perception, influenced of course to a great extent by our varying big backgrounds both in and outside academia, shape what we consider relevant or not within the periods and objects we study, having, as it were, a foot in various fields, which is stimulated so much by simply being a part of the Centre for the Study of the Renaissance, allows us to look beyond the boundaries of the disciplines we're most familiar with, or to connect them in new and exciting ways. As I realised just this Monday at the stimulating Medieval Material Matters Workshop Day, organised by Warwick's Medievalists, looking at manuscripts again after quite some time and discussing case studies proposed by the day's presenters, I was reminded of just how much personalization was possible and went into the production of manuscripts, a practice that lives on, as I am trying to show in my first chapter, in early printed books such as atlases. And of course, the latest generation of e-books seems to be going in a similar direction as publishers experiment with new ways of engaging with their audiences, which seem to be shying away from the physical book by providing them with more and more control over the reading experience. Another example is the progression and actual progress concept implied by the use of terms such as Renaissance and Middle Ages. The early modern period might not be the only and the first one to experience a revival of ancient knowledge. Rinascita, as Vasari, the one responsible for such an expression, wrote in his lives of the artists, sculptures and architects. But the fact that 16th century people like him thought in this way, even if pushed by some celebratory intentions of their patrons, is definitely telling something to us of their mind frame. As historians, we need to investigate if this was the case for, in this respect, the works of early modern artists. But we should not forget that such a paradigm may have influenced the production of the time through chattises and workshop practice. At the end of the day, I think we do consider ourselves truly fortunate to have found a place as stimulating as the Renaissance Centre, to develop our projects and to grow as scholars and individuals. The initiatives organised by the Centre, including studio talk lectures on a wide range of Renaissance-related topics, the recent one-day conference on early modern Naples at Compton Verney's Art Gallery, and the courses on paleography and humanist Latin, for instance, provide great occasions to sharpen relevant research skills, gain fresh insights and share thoughts with early career and established scholars in the field. The collaborative ties between the CSR and institutions in and outside Europe, like the Newberry Library in Chicago, are no doubt highly beneficial too. I was thrilled to be able to participate in the Newberry's annual graduate conference last January, when I had only barely started my PhD. And Rebecca and I are happy to participate in a workshop there on printing, which is organized by our colleague present here, Brighton, and scheduled for March next year. Yes. Work is so well connected. And I mean, literally, living in the Midlands, you live between the North and London. And so many people who were once part of Warwick come often back. At the end of the day, we couldn't recommend more the people and the work done here at the centre and Warwick in general. And we look forward to see what life will bring us these two remaining years of our PhDs. And beyond them, but this is enough from us, Rebecca. And Gloria from Team Print, now saying goodbye to all our listeners. Thank you very much, Rebecca and Gloria, for that wonderful discussion. This is Brian Brazo for the CSR Podcast, signing off.